0: Good morning everybody, it is good to be with you again, I was in California last week with my wife and children and we had quite a time and uh, we had quite a drive, it was a long drive and drinking a bunch of monsters doesn't help, it helps you not crash but it almost kills you too. So we made it back and here we are, I'm glad to be with you. We read this passage. This is another short story from Luke. Luke wrote the book of Acts. He gives us this short story, and there's this moment where a man is struck blind. That's an odd moment. We don't see that a lot where the power of God uh, brings that kind of effect into a person's life, very rarely, if ever. So it's interesting that this happens, and it reminds me of the metaphor that we see often in the book of John, but elsewhere in the life of Jesus. Jesus, the presence of God, comes into the life of a blind person. And what happens to that blind person? They, they gain sight. It's sort of Jesus healing blind people is something that happens in His ministry. And we know that that's a semion or a sign to help us understand what kind of God we follow. Jesus being fully God helps us to understand the nature of God, and the New Testament seems to want us to understand that God is a guy, a God, who brings sight. He helps us to see. And I, and I think that the picture of eyeballs going from dysfunctional to functional is a, is a microcosm of the bigger picture of helping human beings understand reality, yes? So yes, going from blindness to being able to see is a great picture, a visceral, tangible picture of it. But the bigger picture is moving human beings from not understanding reality into understanding the truth or the reality of this world. At some level, there's lots and lots and lots of people whose eyeballs work just fine, who remain totally blinded to the reality of this world. And if you're living in the world blinded to its reality, you're running into lots of stuff. (laughs) You're, You're experiencing tremendous fear. Imagine if you were struck blind right now. You're not like, oh sweet, this is kind of a cool new way to do the afternoon. No, you're terrified you can't drive you don't know where to go etc so if we have a misunderstanding about the reality in this world life gets really gnarly jesus seems to be a god who wants to set us free from that and open us up into the freedom and the love and something very very lively so god's presence then in your life is illuminating now sometimes we 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 just say oh, okay that's cool. Uh, good. I agree. But there's more to it. If you remember Jesus' language, he says, I will abide in you if you abide in me. There's a, there's a picture always in the invitation of Jesus, which is to follow him. And it, and it means to live and think in the way that he lives and thinks. We see it in the New Testament, He's still living and thinking that way today. And I want to suggest that if you're not following Jesus, you are as blind as can be. Just believing that God's presence brings light isn't enough. There is a, there is a dimension to this thing we call the Christian life, which is choosing to follow Jesus. When you do, notice, notice, that's an ongoing way of life. It's not a moment. You don't pray to receive Jesus' salvation and then immediately understand all of the reality of the world and your relationship to your neighbors and God. That's a lifelong process. So as you follow Him, He brings you into the freedom to see and understand what is real. That comes through joining Jesus. And it leads to a life of grace. And it leads to the kind of good feeling that never ends. When you're, when you're blind and fumbling around in a world that's very dangerous, there's not a lot of good feeling. And we've, we've invented tremendous and creative ways of feeling good. But it always sort of ends. There's this way of following Jesus, which doesn't eradicate suffering in terms of physical pain, but it does bring us into a kind of peace that is so much deeper and consistent than anything else. It goes beyond our understanding. It's a peace that surpasses understanding. But I think sometimes we forget that we have to be following Jesus, thinking about others the way He does. You've heard me preach this way often, and today we have another example, but specifically from the angle of, are you blind or do you see reality? So let's read the story together again. I'm going to read it more slowly, and then I'm going to draw your attention to, I think, a a couple of really significant points along the way. We'll pick it back up in verse 1, Acts 13, verse 1. Now there were these prophets and teachers in the church at Antioch. Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius the Cyrenian, Menaean, who was a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, important guy, and Saul. Saul will later be Paul. While they were serving the Lord and fasting, right off the bat, we get a picture. They're following the Lord. Fasting is a picture of seeking God's will, willfully stepping out of your habits of day-to-day life, to pause, frame your heart and mind, point it toward God and seek His will. They're serving the Lord, they're fasting, and the Holy Spirit says, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Well, that's very interesting. Pause for a second. It's not the church who calls Barnabas and Saul, is it? It's God who calls Barnabas and Saul. The church then sets apart Barnabas and Saul. The language in the Greek is both imperative and emphatic. Imperative, you do this. Emphatic, think exclamation point. So set them apart for me right now, the Holy Spirit says to them. Verse 3, then after they had fasted and prayed and placed their hands on them, they sent them off. Your Bible might be a different translation, but something along the idea of sending them off. You get into the Greek and the the kind of verbal idea is release. They released them. And I think that's an interesting action to think about as well. I think it's very instructive for us as Central Bible Church, this local church, right now in our day. They released them to go do what God had called them to do. This is a beautiful picture. I'm going to camp on this for a second. This is a beautiful picture of open-handed ministry, holding the things that God has given to us with open hands, willingness to let God lead, willingness to never grasp onto them. Okay? Think about this church and what it felt like to lose Paul and Barnabas, all right? Imagine if I was not Ben Tartine, but I was the Apostle Paul. (laughs) You know, first of all, we'd need a bigger building. There would be a huge draw, even beyond the Pacific Northwest, to come hear the Apostle Paul talk. Back then, I don't think he had that kind of notoriety yet. A lot of people wanted to kill him. But still, you have a spokesperson from God, appointed by God, preaching the gospel, and he is at that point and will remain one of the most formidable Christian pastors and teachers in the history of the church. And God says, let him go. How do you feel? But he's leading and teaching and guiding. It's so important to our ministry. God says, let him go. I can hear all kinds of voices in our modern church world today whining about how letting Paul and Barnabas go at this time would be a bad leadership decision. Then this is just right when the church in Antioch is getting going. We need that kind of strength. We can't let go of Paul and Barnabas. This is going to harm the church. This is going to diminish the impact that we're having. And that's probably true. Having Paul and Barnabas leave probably diminished the impact in Antioch. But maybe it wasn't just about Antioch. Perhaps God sees and understands reality in a way that we don't. The Spirit knows what will be lost if Paul and Barnabas leave, and yet He still calls them to leave, and and He doesn't seem to be hesitant to do so. He wants them to go somewhere else. I think this is huge for us today at our church. We have experienced a lot of conflict and misunderstanding along the way. We've experienced lots of things that lead us to new challenges, and that kind of tension and that kind of atmosphere can cause us to say, man, we've got to hang on to this. I've got to keep this. I've got to, thats going to be—and we kind of get into that spot. I want you to see this picture, try to sit in the shoes of these early believers in this early church and recognize they had Barnabas and Paul, and when God said, it's time to let that go, they said, okay, we trust you. I guarantee very few of them were like, yeah, that's awesome. Get rid of Paul. I bet they were bummed. I bet there were tears shed. But they truly believed that the Spirit of God was worth listening to. I think the person who cannot grasp what Luke is showing us here will consistently feel negative and bad, like something is wrong when things in church life come and go. It will always be a problem. The person who takes the New Testament seriously, the person who takes what the Scriptures teach us seriously, will see that all throughout the history of God's people, there are times where God gives, there are times where God moves, changes. All of the things that we do must be directly related to the leading of God's Spirit rather than other things. When I start to think, you might say, if I'm one of I could totally see myself in that church in Antioch, thinking, I can't believe that this elder board let Paul go. That is just stupid. When I start to think, I know better. This never should have happened. I know how things should work. I need to step back. I need to step back and I need to say, boy God, I'm gonna act and think as wise as I can But even my strongest impressions about how things should work are subject to change by you. I am willing to follow you more than my own personal certainty. He gives us a picture of a community who's not addicted to their own certainty about how things should work. He gives us a picture of men and women who live in open-handed ministry, trusting God's Spirit. I think that is so important for us. It's a posture of freedom, isn't it? There's no fear in that. It, it almost seems stupid to us, but it's not stupid. It's trust. It is genuine belief in a gospel that says Jesus will renew all of the cosmos. And, and if Jesus is the only one who can do that, I need to not think that I'm in charge of doing that. <laughs> I need to trust Him. It's a beautiful picture. They trust the Spirit of God, all right, and so they send them on their way. And then we pick it back up in verse 4. So Barnabas and Saul, sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. All right, I think Luke doubles down here. This is cool. You pass right over it if you read it too quick. Notice, the church prayed for them. The church released them. But here it's the Holy Spirit, and, and the Holy Spirit was who called them. Here it's also the Holy Spirit who sends them. You see that? Sent out by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit commands the church to act, and they do. And then the Spirit sends their great teachers, and they go willingly. All right. So they roll out of Antioch. They've got about a 16-mile walk down to Seleucia, which is the… It's not right on the coast, but it's their port town, just a couple miles inland. Roman fleet would have been anchored there huge port town, so you can go to Seleucia and then go to lots and lots of different locations around the Mediterranean out of this seaport. So it's a real happening spot. They choose to go to Cyprus, it's about 60 miles offshore, and this is the next part of their journey. We might call it a missionary journey. I want to stop here and do a little side note. Uh, I'm going to get on a little soapbox for a second. I don't ever do that, so I'll do that just for a second. Um, Some of you, like me, have been trained to understand Paul's travels through the Mediterranean as missionary journeys. You open up any Bible map today, and there will almost definitely be color-coded squiggly lines that go back and forth to Italy and Jerusalem and the islands and so forth, and it's like, this is Paul's first missionary journey, this is Paul's second missionary journey, etc. I think this is problematic if you think about missions the way that most modern evangelicals think about missions, which is somewhat like… you can see it in Dwight… you guys know the name Dwight Moody? He started Moody Bible College, very famous man, faithful leader in the church, faithful man of God. In his day… Uh, the understanding of missions, he captures it really well in this quote. He said this, and he was very, this is often quoted of Dwight L. He says, I look upon this world as a wrecked vessel. God has given me a lifeboat, and he has said, Moody, save all you can. This is a very deep understanding. I once wrote an article about evangelism, and on the cover of the magazine was a lifeboat Throwing out a life preserver, there's a real common understanding of that. That's what missions is, going out, get, scooping as many people out of the seas of death into the boat of life and so forth. And Moody, I think like many, certainly like the great founders and leaders of our church here at Central Bible. In this day, they really grabbed onto the idea that once a person acknowledges Jesus as Savior, he or she is saved. Whatever truth there is in that notion, and I think there is truth in that notion, I don't want to chip against that too hard, there's something really true there. If that's our main understanding of Jesus' mission, trying to compel people to acknowledge Him as Savior, notice how that has very little to do with joining Jesus' mission. And this is one of the things that we, in our church life today, are working to correct. We're trying to get back onto a trajectory of actually understanding the Christian life and the saved life as one that is on mission with Jesus, not just agreeing that He's the Savior. You see? Yes. By acknowledging Jesus as Savior, you are rightly acknowledging that you can't save yourself. That's a great thing. You're also acknowledging that Jesus paid it all, that his blood was spilled for your transgressions and so forth. That's a good thing. But if that's the understanding you have of the faith and therefore missions, then there's almost no emphasis on learning to never judge your neighbors again because Jesus never did that. You see? There's almost no evidence on learning to never trust an earthly government again. Why would we never do that? Because Jesus never did that and told us to never trust an earthly government. You see? We, we, we fail to totally detach ourselves from our obsession with money because we're, we're taught that just acknowledging Jesus as Savior is the win but we fall short of saying actually thinking like he does is how you gain sight, move out of blindness. Jesus says, I don't even have a pillow. I don't even have a place to lay my head. I don't even have a de- Foxes have a better living scenario than I do. What is that? That's a picture of a man who is not obsessed with possessions and money. Learning to live and think like Jesus is the learning of freedom. And if we don't, we'll be perpetually blinded. And it gets real gnarly when you're living in blindness and you're assured of your salvation. Oh, it just wrecks Christian communities when we live in that way. So this sermon and many of the things we've been talking about for a long time now are going to consistently be aiming our community at drawing back into real mission with Jesus, learning to think and live like He does. Consider this very, this is a great quote from I. Howard Marshall. He's a New Testament guy. I like, he's got good stuff to read. It's just a paragraph, but this is really good. Here it is. Paul's missionary work during this period has the best claim to being called a missionary journey, which is customary on Bible maps. So, this move, this float out to Cyrus is probably the closest we have to actually being a missionary journey in the sense that we often think of it. The later periods were much more devoted to extended activity in significant cities in the ancient world. What he's saying is, this looks like a quick in, teach, share the gospel, roll on, and we think of missions that way a lot, but more so Paul was going to big cities and staying for long periods of time. So the later periods were more devoted to extended activity in key cities, and we gain a false picture of Paul's strategy if we think of him as rapidly rushing on missionary journeys from one place to the next, leaving small groups of half-taught converts behind him. It was Paul's general policy to remain in one place until he had established the firm foundation of a Christian community, or until he was forced to move by circumstances beyond his control. So Paul goes and sits and works because establishing the firm foundation upon which a church must be built takes time. It takes way more than a decision to acknowledge Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. If that's Paul's main goal, then he goes from one town, stays for a week or two, has a revival, goes to the next town, stays for a week or two, has... And sometimes those maps can almost convey an an idea that Paul's just hopping from one town to the other, dropping cool sermons and hoping it connects. No, Paul was working with people, training people, discipling people. Learning to live with Jesus is no small task. But it is simple, and it's doable, because Christ is with you, and He strengthens you to do it. And you can do anything, because He's strengthening you. All right, Paul was moved to Antioch, notice, and then by the Spirit. Then after being in Antioch, the Spirit moved him on. That's kind of outside of Paul's personal control. I guess he is responding well to the call, but he's really following the Spirit, and so now. He's off on this ship to Salamis. I believe that Salamis must be the city in which salami was invented. And so it is worthwhile to consider in and of itself. Salamis had been the capital city of Cyprus for some time, uh, up until about 22 B.C., and then it was made into a senatorial province. This is really crucial. If you miss this, you'll miss the whole… I'm just kidding. But it is important here. An an imperial province in the Roman Empire, think of as a super crucial core uh, part of the empire in which Rome knew there could be controversy and rebellion, so they had centurions and they had legions stationed there, Roman guards and troops. That was in the imperial provinces, the big boys. The senatorial provinces were kind of around the edge. They didn't pose any real threat of rebellion. And so the Senate was given the power to elect a proconsul or a governor to rule over that region. And they didn't have a big military presence, and it was more or less a peaceful spot. Luke is a historian, and he always gets the titles right. So when he calls this, and we will read next here, He talks about the proconsul, he's talking about the governor of that senatorial province in which Cyprus rests. Let's pick it up again in verse 5. When they arrived in Salamis, they had some salami, and then they began to proclaim the Word of God in the Jewish synagogues. Now they also had John as their assistant. That's John Mark. It won't go so well later with John Mark. When they had crossed over the whole island as far as Paphos, which is the new capital, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, or Bar-Yeshua, or Bar-Joshua, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. Luke wants us to know, the dude was sharp. The proconsul summoned Barnabas and Saul, and he wanted to hear the Word of God. Okay, this is interesting. The governor, wherever Paul goes, some, somebody starts talking about it. Paul always seems to stir things up. Sometimes he stirs up full-fledged riots. <laughs> That's my dream in life. Someday. Those of you who want to riot with me, it'll be, but like, a, like Paul's kind, Paul does Christian rioting, which is probably better somehow. So anyhow, Paul, Paul stirs some things up the governor hears about it, he says, I want to hear what these fellows have to say. Bring them in. Well, then we hear about this bar Jesus, a false teacher. You saw three ways that Luke characterized him. He said he's a magician, he's a false prophet, and he's Jewish. What we're supposed to believe about this magician status is unclear. That's That's kind of a tough term to nail down. I think it's a long, If Harry Potter had to describe it, he would say he worked with the dark arts right, in some way. They did necromancy stuff, they could summon the dead, some of them did, they tried to predict... The, the. The prophet word tells me he might be trying to predict the future, and I don't know exactly what he was doing, but he was involved in the dark arts. For us, I think the most important thing is the pattern. Luke is showing us a pattern. We've seen one of these already. Here's this one, and then we'll see another one. These are these moments where the Christian leader engages with a a magician. I almost said musician, but a magician type. These Christian leaders, this is important, the Christian leaders we're reading about are all Jewish. So Luke, Luke is not saying, yeah, when they ran into a Jewish guy, that was bad. No, they are Jewish. What he's talking about is a magician who's syncretizing Judaism and, and magic stuff, other kinds of beliefs from the world around them, superstitions, practices, all that kind of stuff. So, that's the problem that he has here. We notice first Peter had a confrontation with Simon Magus, remember, and something similar happened. Now here's the story we're reading. And then in six chapters, there'll be the sons of Sceva where they will be doing the same kind of thing. So what happens when a true teacher of God runs into a false teacher claiming to teach for God? In all three cases, they have this connection to Judaism and they have all tried to hybridize the religion. They're blending good and evil. I personally, I'll just tell you what I think. I personally think that the blend of good and evil is oftentimes more damaging than just straight-up raw evil. Try to tempt a church leader in Portland today with adopting the values of serial killer Charles Manson. That's just not going to happen, right? Hey, man, these are good values to live by. Kill a bunch of people. No, I'm, that's, that's just raw evil. I'm not attracted to that. Try to tempt a church leader in Portland today with trying to adopt the values of Amazon, Costco, Apple. You'll find a much stronger pull. We need to grow. We need to have more influence. We need to collect more money. We need to achieve a higher notoriety. We need to be popular, likable, influential. We want to have the widest majority supporting what we do. Keep the image positive at all costs. Some of you have watched in the church world news of this last week what happens when a church adopts the values of the world around and says, boy, it would sure be bad for our mission if we exposed wrongdoing, so let's lie about it. Oh, man. That's so much more attractive than just go out and be terrible, right? So these false teachers are raw. uh, It's real attractive because there's the elements of good religion woven into the values and the mindset and the fake wisdom of worldly thinking. It makes me want to think very carefully about how we here in our local church have synchronized our way of thinking and living with the average customs of our culture. Do our demands for privacy within the church community come from God or do they come from somewhere else? Does our value of needing to be heard, needing to cast a vote, needing to be a part of every single conversation, does that come from God's wisdom, or does that come from somewhere else? How about the way we believe that children should learn? Have we synchronized our parenting or our teaching approach with Jesus, or more with Jesus, or more with Hitler, or more with Lady Gaga, you know? Who are, we, who are we learning how to train children from? You don't have to look hard to find church voices from all around the world sounding warnings about this. You, all over the place, church leaders, just anybody in the church, people are writing blogs and books and articles and saying, hey, American church, pay attention. Have you absorbed a cultural way of thinking that has nothing to do with Jesus or the Bible? And this is something we have to work together on and think through in conversation over time. But I want us to be thinking that way. The way that we live in worship reflects something. Is it Jesus or is it America? Those are not the same thing. Luke's short mention here, which is combined with his pattern of writing. So this is a short short mention of this magician, but it's combined with his pattern of thinking. It helps us to see how these kinds of approaches to life with God have always been around, okay? So, so if you're like, oh yeah, the boy, that's just a real new problem that's happening in the western world of America today. It's like, well, it was also happening on Cyprus in the town of Salami. So it's always been a problem, which means we always need to be thinking, who am I following? Where am I getting my values from? What is my biggest priority in life? If you want to know what that is, ask yourself what you worry about the most. Do you worry the most about not being on Jesus' mission, or do you worry the most about your kids not getting into college or not being able to pay for something or so forth? I'm not pointing a finger at you on that, by the way. I cannot, I can't ask that question myself. And, and answer it honestly with, yeah, the number one most important thing for me every single day, every breath I take is to be on mission for Jesus. Almost every time I ask the question, what are you worried about? What are you anxious about? My answer is not that. Isn't that an instructive moment for me, though? Right in that moment, I can say, maybe that's why I'm so anxious and fearful. The proconsul was an intelligent man, we're told. Let's pick it back up in verse 8. Well, we're just about done. This is this is cool. The proconsul, whom Luke has called an intelligent man, he summons Barnabas and Saul, and wanted to hear the word of God. Verse eight. But the mu- the magician, and now this is another one, Elimus, for that is his name translated. He opposed them, and he was trying to turn the proconsul away from the faith. He, he probably didn't want anybody stepping on his power toes, as it were. But Saul, also known as Paul, who is filled with the Holy Spirit, Luke constantly wants us to see that, the Spirit is involved here, stared straight at him, and he said, you who are full of deceit and all wrongdoing, you son of the devil, and in the Greek it's bar Satan, <laughs> bar diabolos. You, bar you're the son of Satan, he says. You son of the devil, you're an enemy of all righteousness. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now look, the hand of the Lord is against you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mistiness and darkness came over him, and he went around seeking people to lead him by the hand. He was blinded. I think Paul just put a physical stamp on top of this man's spiritual reality. I'm going to make your eyes function the way you're functioning, which is blind and disconnected from God. You're, you're, you're perverting or crookeding. You're making the clear and straight paths of God all kinds of warped, which means you're blind, and now I'm going to give you blindness. If you remember Paul's, this is such a cool thing. Remember Paul's own personal story, how this came about. There are so many parallels between Paul and this son of Diabalos, or son of Satan. Both of these guys at one point strongly opposed God's Word. Both of these guys were struck blind. Remember Paul, struck blind by God? But mercifully so, they were struck blind only for a time rather than permanently to make a point. And both were said to be in need of having someone lead them by the hand while they were in their blindness." Luke is drawing our attention to a comparison between this false teacher and Paul himself and saying, these guys went through a very similar process. Here's another one that Luke doesn't say outrightly, but I think we see it clearly in the story. Both were operating with some kind of confidence that they had special access to divine insight and power, you see? Remember Paul? He was operating, zealously so, saying, I know the will of God. I have insight because of my high learning and great credentialing, and I know God wants us to kill these Christians, so let's do it, you see? Paul was operating from that mindset. I doubt that Paul would have identified himself in the way that the magician does. The magician is more prone to say, I have that power. Paul would have always been diverting it to Yahweh. But in his world, his great learning, his great status in the audiences around him would have looked at Paul and said, wow, he's a scholar he's a PhD, he's well-respected, he's published, the rabbis love him. That means he knows what God knows more than anybody else. And so he commanded that kind of respect even if he wasn't demanding it on his own. I don't want you to hear me making a, a cavalier claim. Ever in my ministry with you. I don't ever want to come to the table and say, I know that this is God's holy will. He wants you to do this. And if you don't, that means you don't trust God. I've heard a lot of pastors do that kind of stuff. I think it damages the church. I can't stand before you and say, I have a certain direct line to God's holy will. I don't think any of us does. Instead, I want to say things like, based on the best wisdom that God has given me, I think this is the wisest route for us to go. You'll even hear me say, I believe deeply that the Spirit of God is leading us in this way. But I'm never going to claim to know with certainty the direct will of God. And I don't think that we should either. I think when we say, we're doing the wisest we can, what do you think? We can engage in the kind of conversation that helps us sharpen one another and helps us as a community move closer to God. As soon as I come in and claim that, I start to divide our church, don't I? As soon as I come in and say, I think this is the wisest route, then in love and grace together, we can dialogue and move forward together. I think that's really important. And I'll just tell you, when people come to you and say, boy, I, I know God's holy will on He says this. Now I'm not talking about should I kill this person or not. I know God's will on that question, all right? No, <laughs> don't do that. So I'm not talking about is it sinful or not. I'm talking about the ways we choose to live in life. If somebody comes to you saying, I know God's will, I'll just tell you straight out, they're, they're lying to you. They're, they're exaggerating the feeling, and they've, maybe they're not even doing so maliciously. But we have to be really… A red flag should fly when that kind of stuff starts happening. And that is what the magicians were notorious for doing. I have a direct link to the divine insight and power. All right. We don't want to live that way. Luke shows us how Christians move from the fakeness of imagined power to the insanely powerful reality of humility and grace and forgiveness. Jesus' power. That's really cool. When you're teaching your children about how to live with strength and how to be alive and free in this world, do so by showing them and teaching them about the life of Jesus over and over and over. You can't do it too much. That's how you teach children power. It's how we teach one another to be powerful in our lives. Are you humble? Do you forgive people? Are you open-handed with your possessions and other things? Are you gracious? The world says, that's all weak sauce. We know it's not. When you're thinking about the church and what it means to belong to a strong and healthy church, we avoid the mentality that looks for power In big things and popular things and influential things and amazing things as the world would define them when we say does our church have power the first question is is it loving do our neighbors know us as fully loving are we forgiving are we gracious toward one another are we honest with one another are we like Jesus because if we are we are powerful, alive, and we can see what is real. I'd say that in a world of television explosions and powerfully miraculous advancements and all things entertaining, your surest way to discern between what is fake and what is real is Jesus. What does He value? What does He love? A church is powerful. And healthy only to the degree that it loves one another and loves neighbors in the way that Jesus does. I'm fully convinced of that in the deepest place of my heart and soul. And that brings us up to the last verse, verse 12. Then, when the proconsul, the governor, saw what had happened, he believed because he was greatly astounded at the teaching of the Lord, the teaching about the Lord. And there it is, kind of as the final, the final, I don't know what you call it, the final straw, the final thing. <laughs> there it is. He was greatly astounded at the teaching of the Lord, teaching about Jesus. He saw a literal, physical, supernatural miracle, and I'm sure that he, he, he had a gasp or two like, whoa, that's intense. But he was salmozoed. He was amazed. He was totally, totally taken aback by what they had taught him about the Lord. When they oriented this governor's heart and mind onto the person of Jesus, that was the power. That was huge. Luke tells us that the governor... He tell, he's showing us a picture of how powerful Jesus' message is. I think sometimes we forget that. We think of so many other things that we need to do to help change our children or neighbors or friends and family, da, 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 da. taking them to Jesus, showing them Jesus, showing ourselves, consistently focusing on This is we sang about this in the front end of our, of our service today, making Jesus the center. He was amazed about Jesus. In the same way, Paul was changed, wasn't he? He's walking down the road to Damascus, and Jesus reveals what to him? Some kind of shocking thing that he could do with water or wine or the sky? Or No. He came and he revealed to him the truth about himself, and it changed Paul. Notice the call right there. It's not to find out which contemporary speaker or pastor or man or woman you want to follow. The call by God is to turn your attention to Jesus. And if you're sitting here and you're saying, man, I, I actually want to do that, I would say start with the four Gospels. I always recommend starting with John, but you would start with any of them. Mark might be another. Read those Gospels and read them over and over again. They don't take long to read through. There's no reason that you can't. Read deeply Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and absorb Jesus. Focus your attention on the way He thinks about this world, the way He thinks about others. I'd say many of us today feel chained in our lives to something. Beyond our positive attitudes and happy smiles, often we feel broken deep inside and lost. Where's this all going? Why is this all happening? We're fearful. It's as though we're blind. And I know from my own life that Jesus is the only way to seeing. And He's not as clear as I want Him to be. And He never solves my problems for me, ever, without me changing. And His kind of transformation almost never makes me feel good, but He does make me free. And He makes me alive. And he gives me real sight and ability to see the world as it truly is. And then the good feelings that come from freedom and true life in Christ, those don't ever go away. All the, I have found a thousand ways to make my body and my mind and my heart feel good in this world. And they all last a short amount of time. But following Jesus and the way that it is changing me in a week-to-week basis is making me more and more free from the way this world has terrified me, and it is a beautiful thing. He really believes that Jesus is worth following, Paul does. The act of following Jesus, it changes Peter. We've been watching that, haven't we? All through those series on Mark and all the beginning of Acts. Peter didn't just have an epiphany and change. He started following and walking and living on mission with Jesus. Paul does the same thing. In the ways that they teach, we see them behaving like Jesus. In the ways that they live, we see them living like Jesus. In the ways that they respond to others, we see them responding like Jesus, which means they are on mission with Jesus, and they receive a similar response. They're able to see and live. Paul Before experiencing this this Jesus, he used to be like the false prophet, blind, opposed to God, lost in this world, yes? Now, Paul is like Jesus, and that was a picture in this whole story. Paul has been living like Jesus, which means he can see very well. Let's pray. God, it is it is utterly impossible to figure you out. It is really hard to train my attention upon you only. I sometimes feel like I cannot go ten minutes, sometimes one minute, without revolving back into some sort of thought about what's wrong, what I need to be afraid of, what I haven't done yet. So many thoughts and impressions and motives and values and desires that just have nothing to do with you. And then I I grow blind. And then I I start to feel despair and sadness and hopelessness and all of the stuff that's just commonplace in the world comes into my heart and soul. And it hurts and it just messes me up. And I'm, I doubt that I'm speaking for myself right now. I think we're all like that. We're thankful for Your Word. We're thankful for the Old and New Testaments. We can get together like this, think about them a little bit, talk about them. We see these stories. And today I, I, I feel like in this story that you show us with Paul... You're helping us to see what open-handed ministry looks like. You're helping us to see what trusting You really looks like. And You're helping us to see that following You and living like You and thinking like You is the path to freedom and to understanding reality in this world. I ask that through Your Spirit You would strengthen every child in this room to follow after You, that You would strengthen every woman and every man in this room to follow after You. Help us to reorient all of our life unto You and to trust that that is worth doing more than anything else. Thanks for being so patient with us as we learn to do this. Uh, We're not super fast at it, but we are coming after You and we're thankful that You're patient and loving. We trust You. Amen. We desire to be formed by the Word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.